I need to open today's episode with a correction. In episode 13 on Millard Fillmore, I incorrectly said New York politician William Seward was named President Zachary Taylor's Secretary of State. That's not true. Seward was a senator from New York during Taylor's presidency, not Secretary of State. Although even from outside the administration, Seward did still have far more influence on Taylor than Fillmore did. Damn it, Seward! Thank you to listener Skip Holmes for catching that mistake. On with the show! Yes, come next March, we'll take the starch out of Fillmore's collar. Old Scott will beat the very first heat and make the coons all holler. Hi, locos, ho, locos, listen while I sing a song for you that's good and true about our Pierce and King. Welcome to Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 14, Franklin Pierce. Faint in Frank! In our last episode, President Millard Fillmore basically destroyed the Whig Party with his overzealous enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. Today, Franklin Pierce will say, hold my beer. In Pierce's case, the hill he will choose to die on is the Kansas-Nebraska Act, a law that sounds like a good idea on the surface. Let each territory vote for itself if it will allow slavery or be free but which goes south in a hurry when pro-slavery border ruffians barge into Kansas from slaveholding Missouri and rig the election at gunpoint to get the outcome they desire. Pierce will spend all his credibility and then half the Democratic Party's credibility trying to defend this farce of a pro-slavery government in Kansas. So grab yourself a drink and hold on tight as Pierce pulls the country one step closer to civil war. Franklin Pierce was born on November 23, 1804 in Hillsborough, New Hampshire, with all the natural gifts you'd expect a politician to have. He was handsome, charming, a natural leader among his friends, and he seemed capable of getting away with everything. Seriously, the kid loved to fish and play and not do his homework, but he seemed to have all the right kind of ah shucks personality to get away with it and lead a blessed life. One of the few times Pierce did get in trouble for his shenanigans came at the age of 12, when his family sent him to a boarding school, which he decided he didn't like. So, one day he up and walked home, which you'd think might get you in trouble. But when his dad found him at the dinner table, he acted like everything was fine. It's cool. He gave his son dinner and then invited young Frank for a carriage ride. They were deep into a giant storm in the middle of nowhere when Frank's father turned to him and said, we're halfway back to school now. You can walk the rest of the way yourself. And that's exactly what Frank did. Which you'd think would teach him a lesson, but I'm not sure it did. In 1825, Pierce graduated college, and two years later, he started practicing law. Pierce's style as a lawyer is about what you would expect from the type of young man he was. 
He didn't win with strongly crafted arguments or well-prepared files of evidence. He won by pulling on the jury's heartstrings and appealing to them emotionally. Nobody confused Franklin Pierce for a great lawyer, but he was a successful one. And in 1828, he started getting into politics. Pierce didn't only have the personality of a politician, he had the family pedigree of one too. His father, Benjamin Pierce, had served with George Washington at Valley Forge and later became the governor of New Hampshire. And that's what got young Frank into politics in the first place. He was stumping for his dad's re-election in 1828. Now, Pierce's dad didn't win re-election in 1828, but he did in 1829 and his coattails carried his son to the state house with him. That's right, Franklin Pierce's community was so inspired by the young man's speech-making that it elected him to the New Hampshire Congress as a Jacksonian Democrat. And, I mean, I have to say, it must have crossed somebody's mind that having the governor's son as the local representative might also result in a bit more of the state's budget being thrown their way too. I mean, just a guess. Anyway, shortly into his political career, Pierce met and married a woman named Jane Means Appleton on November 19th, 1834. And Franklin Pierce owes a lot to Jane Means Appleton. For one, she was very pro-temperance, as in anti-alcohol, and Franklin was turning into a bit of a lush. He cleaned up his act for their marriage, but it would be a very tragic marriage. They'd have three children together, but each would die before their 12th birthday. One death, that we're going to get to later, was so ghastly that Jane never got over it. When she passes away later in his life, Franklin's going to fall way, way off the wagon. So brace yourself for an unhappy ending. Back in politics, Pierce served four terms in the state legislature and one as New Hampshire's Speaker of the House before being elected Senator to D.C. in 1837. But he resigned just before his first term ended in 1842, maybe because Jane wanted him closer to home, or maybe because the Democrats had just lost majority control of the Senate, and being a senator isn't as fun when you don't get to set the agenda. Anyway, Pierce resigned his seat and went home to New Hampshire, where he became the most powerful man in the state's Democratic Party. And then, five years later, he went off to war. In 1847, Pierce enlisted in the Mexican-American War, which was then in its second year. And this is where Pierce's life begins to resemble a bit of a Three Stooges act. Pierce probably saw the war as a chance to win the kind of glory his father had won in the Revolution. Glory that could set an ambitious young man up for further political success. But here's the tricky thing about military glory. There are no guarantees in war, and if you go chasing glory in a war, you might not find it. By the time Pierce arrived in Mexico with a regiment of New Hampshire volunteers he had organized, General Winfield Scott, all fuss and feathers, was already on the doorstep of Mexico City. If you remember episode 11 on James K. Polk, 
General Scott had launched a naval invasion of central Mexico with an eye on capturing Mexico City to force favorable peace terms on the Mexican government, which was kind of mucking up Polk's plans by not surrendering. So Pierce is getting here just in time for the climactic battle of Mexico City, which is great, right? Like, so much glory. Except, well, Pierce is Pierce. Pierce's first chance at glory came during one of the first attacks on Mexico City. Pierce was all ready to lead the charge, mounted on his horse with his men, when a shell landed nearby and terrified his steed. The horse bucked in such a way that the saddle jammed into Pierce's groin and he lost consciousness and fell from the saddle, injuring his leg in the process. Soldiers nearby thought Pierce had fainted from fright and declared him a, quote, damned coward as they charged on without him. Which, man, embarrassing, but it's okay. Mexico City is a tough nut to crack and there are going to be several more offensives before the city was won. So Pierce got back with his unit and got ready for the next attack. This time, he decided he would lead the way on foot. No horse was going to thwart him this time. The signal for an attack was given, and he began to lead a charge over very craggy volcanic rock when he twisted his ankle and was so hobbled that he didn't reach the fighting until it was over. This might be when soldiers started calling him Fainting Frank. Which, shoot, that's two lost chances, pretty embarrassing, but hey, he's going to get two more. Okay, so Pierce again rejoined his men, who this time were being held in reserve to be thrown into the fight at the pivotal moment, which is great. Uh, Like, you know those war movies where the reinforcements arrive just in time and save the day? This is Pierce's chance to be those reinforcements. And so there he is with his men, again, and he's ordered into battle, and he's leading the charge, and he's watching his step, and he doesn't trip or fall or anything, and then he gets there, and the fight is already over. It turns out this was one of those fights where the second wave wasn't needed, which meant Pierce was down to just one last chance at glory. And once again, (laughs) it's just not going to be his day. Pierce was bedridden with diarrhea during the last day of the battle when he heard an order to charge had been given. He bolted out of bed, buttoned on his pants, leapt onto his horse, and charged to the front only to once again discover the battle had ended before he could arrive. And this time, I can only imagine he discovered that with poopy pants. So that's the distinguished war record of Franklin Pierce. A bruised groin, a twisted ankle, and two late arrivals. One with poopy pants. Needless to say, he's not going to be the next George Washington with a record like that. But, well, lesser men had become president. He could too. He went home to New Hampshire to play party boss and bide his time. When the election of 1852 arrived, the national political scene was in an interesting place. Two years earlier, the Compromise of 1850 had passed, and as we covered in the past two episodes, the North was super unhappy with the Fugitive Slave Act, and the South was super unhappy that the Compromise had not made slavery legal everywhere. 
And the crazy thing is, you might think between those two groups, Northerners would be more willing to leave over that since they were the ones being you know, actually forced to obey laws they didn't agree with. But no, it was the Southerners who were threatening secession after 1850. During the off-year elections of 1851, many of these radical Southerners ran for office, particularly the governorships of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, on secessionist tickets. But while the Compromise of 1850 hadn't, you know, made slavery legal everywhere, it sure had given the South just about everything else it wanted. So you ended up having a weird realignment of parties in 1851, where radical Democrats ran secessionist candidates, and moderate Democrats teamed up with Whigs to run unionist candidates who clobbered the secessionists and really seemed to put the whole secessionist movement to bed. For a few years, anyway. As a result... When the election of 1852 came around, the Democrats were convinced they could only win if they found a northern candidate, because, you know, the North would trust a northerner, but a northern candidate who supported the Compromise of 1850, which the South had just shown it could get behind. Which meant the Democrats had three serious candidates, Michigan Senator Lewis Cass, former Pennsylvania Senator James Buchanan, and Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. And, as you may have noticed, none of those men are Franklin Pierce. But don't worry! Back then, each state's Democratic Party would get together before the convention and agree who the state's favorite son would be. Now, we haven't talked much about favorite sons yet, but basically, the favorite son got to negotiate on their state's behalf with the major candidate's representatives to see who could offer the best deal in exchange for the state's support. So if you're the favorite son of New Hampshire, maybe someone promises federal investments in ports, or a certain number of patronage appointments for New Hampshire loyalists, or even a cabinet position for the favorite son in return for delivering the state's votes. Sometimes, the favorite sons were even put up for president themselves. So, it was a pretty big deal when New Hampshire's favorite son was also not Franklin Pierce. Seriously, New Hampshire's favorite son was some judge. But then, that judge died, and New Hampshire decided its new favorite son was totally Franklin Pierce. So yeah, it's going to be that kind of election. Pierce is going to win, and nobody is going to see it coming. The Democratic Convention of 1852 was the sort of knock-down, drag-out convention fight that is now a thing of legend. The supporters of Lewis Cass, James Buchanan, and Stephen Douglas were at each other's throats for ballot after ballot, hour after hour, day after day. Pierce's name wasn't even mentioned as a presidential candidate until the second day of the convention, and he would not win until the third day. That's how deadlocked this thing was. As the Cass, Buchanan, and Douglas diehards were going at it, everyone else was getting annoyed. And that's when, on the 35th ballot, the Virginia delegates cast the first ballots for Franklin Pierce. And slowly, gradually, others started to drift his way, too. As the convention went to day three, more and more delegates came around to the affable, 
inoffensive Pierce. The Cass supporters were like, well, he's better than Buchanan or Douglas. And the Buchanan supporters were like, well, he's better than Douglas or Cass. And the Douglas supporters were like, well, you get the point. On the 49th ballot, the entire convention swung his way. Pierce had won when a writer from the Democratic convention tracked him down when he and his wife were on a carriage ride so he could tell them the news. Pierce was stunned and his wife fainted. Compared to the nomination fight, the general election of 1852 is going to be a cakewalk. The Democrats were a well-oiled machine that year. They could have turned out the vote for a jar of mayonnaise. One of their campaign slogans was, we poked you in 44 and we'll pierce you in 52. How do you lose with a slogan like that? And the Whigs? Well, as we mentioned at the start of today's episode, outgoing President Millard Fillmore had all but destroyed them with his aggressive enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. The party declined to renominate Fillmore and instead nominated Winfield Scott. Oh, fuss and feathers! pitting Pierce against his old commander from the Mexican-American War. But the Southern Whigs abandoned the party in outrage over the rejection of Fillmore, who had been so friendly to them. And the Northern Whigs abandoned the party in outrage over the Fugitive Slave Act. One Whig said trying to unite the party in 1852 was like peeing into a wind that was blowing 60 miles per hour against you. Pierce swept the Electoral College 254 to 42 and won 27 of 31 states. But in the popular vote, he just barely eked out a 51% majority. As we'll get to in a bit, he did not enter office with the sort of mandate his Electoral College victory would suggest. And so, on March 4th, 1853, 48-year-old Franklin Pierce, faint and frank, the New Hampshire Democrat and kinda sorta Mexican-American war veteran who was gifted charm, but not much else, was sworn in as the 14th president of the United States of America, the youngest man yet elected to that role. Let's take a look around the country and the world to see what he inherited. Internationally, the Taiping Rebellion was raging in China. This was a brutal civil war in China between the reigning Qing dynasty and, I kid you not, a pseudo-Christian communist revolutionary movement led by a guy who thought he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. Really? And this rebellion is actually a pretty big deal. The Taiping Rebellion is the bloodiest civil war in world history, and 20 million people will die before it's over. The American Civil War, by comparison, will kill less than 1 million people. So yeah, massive upheaval was underway in China. Domestically, the United States was far more divided than Pierce's electoral college route would suggest. 
the Compromise of 1850 had been designed to diffuse tension over the expansion of slavery into land acquired from Mexico. But just two years later, the South was already clamoring for more, more protection for the so-called rights of slave owners who wanted to take their slaves wherever they wished, and more freedom to settle those slaves in federal territory and create more slave states. There was no such thing as enough. And as much as the South wanted more, the North wanted the bull crap to end. Slavery needed to be contained. How long until the South forced it back on the North? They needed only look at the injustices of the Fugitive Slave Act to see what the South really thought of states' rights. They were meaningless. Just another false pretense to be used when it suited the South and jettisoned when it didn't. The North was seriously concerned that someday the South might force northern states to reimpose slavery. It was going to take another masterclass politician to navigate these tricky waters. And Pierce was no master. Pierce would immediately undermine himself by blowing his political appointments, the first task of any new administration, and a key one to building and strengthening support. But you know what? I'm going to give Pierce a lot of slack for the early days of his administration, because two months before he was sworn in, at a time when he should have been building his cabinet and laying these plans, he was hit by one of the most terrible personal tragedies I have ever heard of. On January 6th, 1853, Pierce, his wife, and his 11-year-old son were traveling by train when the train derailed in a freak accident. Pierce and his wife were okay, but when Pierce looked behind him to where his son had been sitting, he saw his son, his last surviving son, had been partially decapitated by the train accident. The back of the boy's head had been torn off. How do you ever unsee something like that? At his inauguration, Pierce refused to be sworn in on the Bible, feeling God had punished him for his sins. And his wife was more direct than that, thinking his hubris in pursuing the presidency had brought God's wrath upon them. As if he had made some unholy deal with the devil, his son's life, for the presidency. And so, if Pierce's heart and head weren't in it, as he had to build his cabinet, I totally get it. But it was unfortunate, because the people who took advantage of Pierce's tragedy and distraction did him no favors with the cabinet they created. So, here's the deal. Similar to the now-defunct Whigs, the Democrats were being pulled in opposite directions by abolitionists and pro-slavery fanatics. But, as we saw in the off-year election of 1851, those guys were still in the minority. They may have been a loud minority, but most of the country was in the middle. When Pierce became president, he set out to build a unity cabinet, which is great. But he built his unity cabinet almost exclusively by nominating guys on the two opposite fringes of the party and hardly anybody from the middle. And this caused all sorts of problems. 
because he was nominating extremists, and I mean extremists, uh, the future Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, was put in charge of the War Department, for goodness sakes. It was hard as hell to get any of these people confirmed in the Senate. So Pierce was immediately losing political capital trying to win confirmation fights. And by putting extremists in his cabinet and leaving moderates out in the cold, Pierce was empowering the radical wings of his party and weakening the moderates in the middle. Whenever he wanted to build consensus or something like that during his administration, there would be nobody in the middle to build consensus with. And there's one other important thing to keep in mind. Remember how Pierce didn't even get really mentioned at the party convention until the 35th ballot on the second day? Yeah, he was nobody's first choice. Pierce was a compromise candidate. So it was really easy for folks to start blaming him whenever they saw something they didn't like because it's not like anybody ever wanted him to be president in the first place. So, with that backdrop, I'm going to dive into the two pivotal conflicts of Pierce's presidency, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas. The Kansas-Nebraska Act was another conflict over the expansion of slavery, this time in the lands of the old Louisiana Purchase. If you remember back to episode 5 on James Monroe, this question had been settled in 1820 when the North and South agreed that slavery would be allowed in Missouri but forbidden in any other Louisiana Purchase territory north of Missouri's southern border. Well, by 1853, the South was wanting out of that agreement. It had been 49 years since Louisiana had been purchased and 33 years since the Missouri Compromise, but there was still a ton of that old Louisiana purchased land left to settle. Only Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, and Iowa had gone from Louisiana territory to statehood. Everything else from Texas to the Canadian border, pretty much the whole Great Plains, was an unorganized territory known as Nebraska. And now, in the 1850s, two groups of people were finally wanting to move in. Northern farmers, who wanted to set up family farms, and northern railroad companies, who were competing with the South to build the first railroad to California. Because everybody knew the first rail company to reach California was going to make so much money. But here's the hitch. Nobody could buy any of that land until the federal government turned it from unorganized territory to organized territory. And Democratic Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, the midwife of the Compromise of 1850, and President Franklin Pierce both wanted to make that happen. But there was at least one powerful voting bloc that didn't want to let them do it. The entire South. Southern congressmen were throwing a major hissy fit because, you guessed it, slavery. They were vowing to defeat any legislation that organized Nebraska into a territory that could be sold and settled unless the Missouri Compromise was thrown out the window and slavery was allowed to expand to the land it had long been forbidden. Which the North, of course, was calling malarkey on. So Senator Douglas came up with the compromise I mentioned at the top of the episode, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The act 
organized the vast Nebraska Territory, practically the whole Great Plains, into two territories, Kansas and Nebraska. And then it decreed the Missouri Compromise was null and void, and the two territories would vote for themselves if they would allow slavery or not. Which, yay, democracy at work! Unless... Unless the two sides decided mob violence would be more fun. Huh. And this bill, by the way, was super unpopular. The Whigs were dead as an opposition party, but a random hodgepodge of small anti-Democrat parties popped up all over the North to take their place, such as the Know-Nothings we discussed in our last episode, and an upstart coalition in the Midwest that was calling itself the Republican Party. These new opposition parties shocked the Democrats by clobbering them in the midterm elections after the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed into law. Democrats lost 66 of the 91 northern congressional seats they held. Now, that did not all go to the Republican Party, but quite a bit did. The Republican Party is growing. So, okay. The Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed. The deed is done. It's time for everyone to cool down and let folks move in and let democracy do its thing as the territories vote to decide if they want to allow slavery or not. And this is when everything goes off the rails. So, when Kansas opens up to settlement, most of the folks who move in are northern farmers, or southerners who were so small-time that they had never owned slaves. As the northerners move in, they had to pass through the slave state of Missouri to get to Kansas, which meant many of these northerners were getting their first up-close look at slavery, and they were not liking it. The slave pens, the auction blocks, the misery, they didn't want that in Kansas. And when the Southerners of Missouri saw these Northerners heading to Kansas, they got real nervous. They had assumed that if each territory could vote its own fate, Kansas would vote for slavery. But what if it didn't? If Kansas was free, Missouri's slaves could flee across the border whenever they liked. That just wouldn't do. It was time for Missouri to put its thumb on the scale in Kansas. On March 30th, 1855, election day for Kansas's first territorial legislature, which would determine the slavery question for Kansas, hundreds of heavily armed pro-slave border ruffians from Missouri crossed into Kansas to take over polling places, stuff ballot boxes, and make sure they got the results they wanted. This straight up was the stealing of democracy by the slaveocracy. The fraudulently elected legislature was so pro-slavery that they made it illegal to hold office without swearing an oath that slavery would be forever legal in Kansas. They made harboring a fugitive slave punishable by 10 years hard labor, and they made circulating abolitionist literature a capital offense. As in, punishable by death, which is crazy. The few legislators who hadn't been put in office by the border ruffians resigned and formed a rival free state territorial government in Topeka that, well, it wanted two things. 
They wanted democratic elections, and they wanted to ban slavery. And all black people from Kansas. Because, yeah, they were still racist, too. This is not exactly a great decade for the American exceptionalism crowd. Back in Washington, D.C., Pierce had to decide how to handle this mess. Should he recognize the free state government, the fraudulent pro-slavery government, or call for new elections? And what do you know? He totally recognized the fraudulent one. Pierce declared the free state government was an outlaw regime that had to disband and go home. Quote, any attempted insurrection will be resisted, not only by the employment of local militia, but also the army. And that's about when the shooting started. On May 21st, 1856, the pro-slavery legislature formed a posse of mostly Missourians that attacked Lawrence, Kansas, and destroyed the printing press of an anti-slavery newspaper and shelled a hotel room with a cannon. Nobody was hurt, but like, what the hell? One day later, in Congress, South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks attacked Massachusetts Republican Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate and beat him within an inch of his life with a cane. The reason for the attack was that Sumner had called Brooks' cousin, who was another congressman, a pimp for slavery. And this was no light beating. I mean, Sumner was just sitting there at his desk writing when Brooks walked up and just started wailing on him. And when colleagues tried to make Brooks stop and pull him off, one of Brooks's friends pulled a gun on the floor and said, let Brooks finish. Sumner, I mean, he had to go back to Massachusetts and it took a while to recover. His desk sat empty until he was healthy enough to return several years later. Massachusetts refused to replace him with anybody else. They wanted everyone in Congress, everyone in the Senate, to see that empty desk and remember what the South had done. The country was going to hell, and Pierce was taking most of the blame for it. The Democratic Party realized it had to ditch him if it wanted to keep the White House. Five days before the Democratic convention that Pierce had hoped would renominate him, the New York Herald wrote, quote, Pierce's follies, his imbecilities, his false promises and still falser associates have ruined him with his own party. He is now merely a dupe in their hands. Further north, in New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce's hometown burned him in effigy. After the first day of balloting at the Democratic Convention of 1856, Pierce withdrew his name. The South had supported him, but yeah... Nobody else did. James Buchanan, one of the three favorites that Pierce had upset in 1852, Buchanan finished ahead of Pierce on every ballot. The nomination would be his. As Pierce closed out the final months of his administration, the situation in Kansas went from bad to worse. And I've seen a couple different versions of, of this next part. The one I saw was an anti-slavery radical named John Brown and his sons murdered five innocent people who didn't even own slaves. 
They were killed because they had paid their allegiance to the pro-slavery government in Kansas instead of the free state one in Topeka. The U.S. Army responded by arresting the free state governor and dispersing the first meeting of its legislature, making it look to the North like the U.S. Army had become a tool of the Southern slaveocracy. And the killing continued. More than 200 people would be killed during the tragedy known as Bleeding Kansas, a tragedy that will continue in our next episode during the presidency of James Buchanan. As for Faint and Frank, he gave one final grievance-laden speech to Congress, then departed the presidency on March 4, 1857, leaving a divided and damaged country behind him. So, not good. But outside these major developments, how else had the United States and the world changed during the administration of Franklin Pierce? Well, there was actually quite a bit of other stuff domestically. In 1853, a small American fleet known as the Perry Expedition, led by a guy named Perry, well, they had been dispatched by President Miller Fillmore just before Fillmore had lost re-election, but they reached Japan during uh, Pierce's administration and threatened to basically blow up the Japanese capital if the Japanese didn't open their ports to American trade and end a 220-year policy of isolation. So, yeah, threatened with complete destruction by a, a technologically advanced power, the Japanese agreed to trade. Also in 1853, a railroad promoter named Gadsden negotiated the Gadsden Purchase from Mexico, adding nearly 30,000 square miles after initially trying to get much more and finalizing our current southern border. Fun fact, the treaty was signed by 12-time Mexican leader Santa Ana, who we've been running into since episode A on Sam Houston. In 1855, a free black man named John Mercer Langston was elected to political office in Ohio, making him the first ever African American to be elected to serve in the U.S. government. The Pierce administration also witnessed the peak of America's filibustering craze, which didn't mean then what it means today. Today, the term filibuster refers to a senator taking the floor and speaking about whatever they want for hours or days to run out the clock on a, on a session and prevent a vote from taking place. Back in the 1850s, a filibuster was basically an American adventurer who got a bunch of guns, money, and men and tried to launch a coup in another country to overthrow its government and then either rule as a dictator or pursue annexation as a new slave state. They were basically running the Texas playbook, but poorly. For the most part, Pierce and the other presidents tried to stamp these out as Foreign governments didn't really like American adventurers trying to topple them, but one filibuster named William Walker did succeed in making himself president of Nicaragua for about 10 months in 1856. He would later be executed by a Nicaraguan firing squad in 1860. So, all that happened, too. On the invention front, Vermont inventor David M. Smith invented the clothespin. Yep, that's what I got for you. Internationally, 
The Crimean War was fought in Europe from 1853 to 1856. This was a nasty war between France, Great Britain, and the Ottoman Empire, and Russia, which was expanding a bit too aggressively for France and Great Britain's taste. The war was so disruptive to international trade that it actually led to a brief boom for American farmers as Western Europe lost access to Russian grain during the fighting. The world's first oil refinery was built in Romania in 1856, so get ready for vehicles powered by the exploding remains of dinosaurs. And a new method to mass-produce steel called the Bessemer process was discovered in England, or I guess invented in England, in 1856. Steel is going to be a game-changer for construction and inventions around the world in the years to come. After Pierce left the presidency, he spent some time traveling Europe but he was back in the United States by 1859, when it was apparent that Buchanan's presidency was more of a disaster than Pierce's had been. So look forward to that. Future Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who, remember, had been Pierce's Secretary of War, he encouraged Pierce to run for a second term, clearly loving the idea of having a Northern stooge in the White House, but a second run for president never came to be. When states started seceding after Lincoln's election in 1860-61, Pierce tried to slow that train down by writing letters to Southern newspapers saying hundreds of thousands of Northerners were ready to defend the Southern rights, and if the South would just be patient, the North would kick those troublesome abolitionists out of the country. But I have to think this did more harm than good. Like, I mean, if I were in the South and I saw that article... I would think, great, the North doesn't want to fight. This will be easy. Let's get out of here. Pierce stayed largely silent during the Civil War, but started calling it a failure just before the Union victory at Gettysburg. So poor timing there. After the war, Pierce offered to represent Jefferson Davis at his treason trial, but Davis politely declined. The end of Pierce's life was a sad one. His wife and his best friend passed away back-to-back in 1863 and 1864, leaving Pierce to declare, quote, there's nothing left to do but drink. Five years later, on October 8, 1869, he died too, of severe cirrhosis of the liver, likely from extreme alcohol abuse. He was 64 years old. So, what can we learn from Franklin Pierce? How about learn to admit when you're wrong? This is a lesson that, frankly, any of the 1850s American presidents could teach us because they're all pretty terrible at it, but I think Pierce's handling of bleeding Kansas is where it's most apparent. I mean, I get it. The guy, he didn't like abolitionists. He thought they were too radical. But is allowing a bunch of border ruffians to elect a pro-slavery government at gunpoint less radical? The massive losses suffered by the Democrats in the uh, 1854 midterms should have been a huge red flag that something had to change. But instead, Pierce doubled down. And because he doubled down, he couldn't even get renominated by his own party. So that's the lesson. Be willing to admit you're wrong. 
We all make mistakes, but the only mistakes that can really end us are the ones we refuse to admit we've made. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend about the show and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's good to see you're enjoying the show. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music is a recording of Isaac Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was Franklin Pierce by Michael F. Holt. In our next episode, we'll look at the life and presidency of James Buchanan, the man who will rig the game the way he wants it and still manage to lose it in the most extraordinary way possible. Civil War. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>